The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter, and today the next passage we come to is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And the word says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like a sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Let's pray. Father, we're taught that the heavens and earth will pass away, but that your words will never pass away. They are eternally true and eternally relevant and eternally powerful. So help us, Father, to see the truth of this text, to understand its relevance and certainly to experience its power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can see, uh, the title of the sermon this morning is Submission to Authority. And uh, to, just to be candid with you, you may not be quite sure how you feel about that. You know, the idea of submitting to authority isn't exactly the most popular idea nowadays. 
Uh, even for Christians, it's a topic that often makes us feel a bit uneasy. And that's because when we think about authority, it's difficult not to immediately think of all the high-profile examples of authority being abused. For example, I'm sure a lot of us uh, remember a few years ago when the findings of a massive grand jury investigation were released detailing the horrific pattern of sexual abuse and cover-up by various Catholic dioceses right here in Pennsylvania. This report actually named 301 Catholic priests who had engaged in the sexual abuse of minors while in active ministry in the church. Even worse, these cases of abuse were systematically covered up by bishops and other high-ranking church officials. And of course, there are plenty of other examples of authority being abused, not only by church officials, but by many others in positions of authority throughout society. I recently read a story of a government official who oversaw a government agency related to consumer protection, forcing a restaurant to close because that restaurant wouldn't seat his daughter where she wanted to be seated. Uh, Apparently, his daughter went into this popular upscale restaurant without a reservation, and when the staff wouldn't let her sit where she wanted, she called her dad. And her, her dad then sent several officials from this consumer protection agency to carry out what was called a lightning raid on the restaurant, and they claimed to find several violations and uh, proceeded to actually shut down the restaurant, at least for a period of time. And and so it's very understandable for us to be uneasy about the idea of submitting to authority. All of these abuses of authority have certainly taken a toll on our view of authority in general. Not only that, one of us, or one of the things that those of us who are from the United States instinctively value is our personal freedom and autonomy. I mean, that's what being an American is all about, right? Enjoying our rights and freedoms without the government sticking its nose where it doesn't belong. This country was formed so that we could enjoy those rights and freedoms, and so we certainly intend and often are very passionate about enjoying them. And so when we come to a passage like 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25, it can make us feel uncomfortable. By any measure, the ideas that Peter presents here about authority are radically countercultural and therefore difficult for many of us freedom-loving Americans to fully embrace. In all likelihood, there are several parts of this passage that step on our toes a little bit and perhaps at points even rub us the wrong way. But let me just remind you that if your study of the Bible never makes you feel uncomfortable and never results in your toes being stepped on, you're not doing it right. (laughs) If you actually let the Bible speak for itself, instead of you just reading your own ideas into the text, then it will, quite frequently, 
step on your toes. And yet when you think about it, this is actually one of the reasons that we can be sure that the Bible truly comes from God. And that it isn't just something that people made up or the product of human imagination. The supreme wisdom and transcendent authority that we find in the Bible are clearly of divine origin. We might say that the Bible bears God's fingerprints. And so it's very important for us to let the Bible sit in judgment over us rather than us trying to sit in judgment over the Bible. And that's certainly the case as we come to this passage here in 1 Peter 2. In this passage, we're going to be challenged not only to submit to earthly authorities, but also to change our entire view of authority, at least to the extent that uh, our current view of authority is less than biblical. Could it be that authority is actually a blessing? Could it be that authority isn't just some burden that we have to endure, but is actually a good gift from our loving God? That's where we're going. So look with me first at verses 13 and 14. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, obviously, we don't have emperors today, but it's not really that difficult to translate this into our own national context. Peter's telling us to be subject or submit, as that's also translated, to all levels of human government. For us today, that would be our national, state, and local governments. And when you think about the historical context in which Peter was writing, it's pretty remarkable that he would say this. Because the emperor of Peter's day, some of you may know, was a notorious tyrant named Nero. A man who had no regard for human life and who uh, would actually at times light Christians on fire and use them as human torches to light his gardens. He would also feed them to lions and have other horrendous things done to them. So you could put Nero right up there with the worst of the worst. Right? Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, as a ruler who was unspeakably evil. And yet, Peter is very clear that our duty as Christians is to submit to the governing authorities. And as the historical context makes clear, that applies even if those authorities aren't particularly godly people. So I know there are many political leaders in our society today who, uh, let's just say, would leave uh, much to be desired in terms of uh, perhaps their personal character and also of their policies. But first of all, let's be glad they're not Nero, right? And also, we should remember, God still expects us to submit to them as our lawful authorities. And that brings us to the main idea of this passage, which I've already stated several times in various ways, but just to state it clearly and concisely, God calls Christians to be subject to earthly authorities. Again, God calls Christians to be subject 
to earthly authorities. Peter then continues to instruct his readers about this in verses 15 and 16. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So Peter acknowledges that Christians are people who are free. That is, we're free from the penalty of our sins, free from our former bondage to sin, and free from Satan's power. Therefore, Peter says, we should live that way. Live as people who are free. Yet Peter cautions us not to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't think that your freedom means you can just live however you want to. Instead, Peter says, remember that you're a servant of God. In other words, our freedom as Christians isn't a freedom just to live however we like at any particular moment, but instead it's a freedom to serve God. After that, Peter goes on to explain what this looks like in verse 17. He writes, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So with regard to governing authorities, we're supposed to honor the emperor, Peter says. And notice that this is a, it's actually a higher requirement than what Peter said before, right? Because back in verse 13, Peter simply told us to be subject to the governing authorities, which basically means to submit to them and do what they tell us to do. And yet here Peter says that we need to not only submit to the governing authorities, but actually honor them. Think about that. Think about all that honoring someone might involve. Among other things, it involves speaking about them, at the very least, in an honorable and respectful way. And if you want to know what that looks like, uh, I guess the best I can, advice I could give you is maybe just look and see what's commonly written on, you know, X and other social platforms and do the opposite, right? Now, at this point, you might wonder, well, what if they're not worthy of honor? And yet, again, I don't think Nero was particularly worthy of honor either. And yet, Peter writes this even during Nero's rule. So here's, here's the principle. Even if we're not able to honor the person for who they are, we're still called to honor them for the office they hold. One of the most striking examples of this in the Bible is in the book of 1 Samuel, when David honors King Saul. Saul sensed that God wasn't with him any longer and was instead with David and had chosen David to be the new king. And so, in a jealous rage, Saul repeatedly tries to murder David with the result that David was forced to flee for his life. And yet, while he was on the run, David actually had opportunity on two separate occasions to kill Saul. Uh, on one occasion, uh, Saul was relieving himself in a cave, and, and actually not just any cave, but the very cave 
David was hiding it without knowing that David was in there. And on the other occasion, David was able to sneak up to Saul undetected while Saul was fast asleep. So on both occasions, Saul, or David finally had an opportunity to do what needed to be done, right? That's what many people would say, at least. They'd say that any action that David took against Saul under such circumstances could easily be justified as self-defense. And perhaps God had even given David these opportunities for the very purpose of providing David with a, a way to immediately gain the kingship. Yet David held a deep conviction that it was his duty to honor his earthly authorities. And so David resisted the temptation to do any harm to Saul on either occasion. In fact, after the first occasion, when Saul was in the cave, uh, David actually cut a tiny corner off of Saul's robe uh, just to prove that he could have killed Saul. And yet after he did that, David's conscience bothered him. Uh, we read in 1 Samuel 24, 5 and 6, And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, that's lowercase Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he, Saul, is the Lord's anointed. So, not only does David not kill Saul, he actually has a guilty conscience for even cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. He then honors Saul by referring to him, if, if you remember, you see that phrase there, the Lord's anointed. That's actually the way David continues to refer to Saul throughout the subsequent chapters. It's a theme that develops. He repeatedly refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed, a term of honor and respect. And so the point is that if David or if Peter could command his readers to honor their earthly authorities even during the reign of Nero, and if David could give such honor to Saul even while Saul was trying to kill him, certainly you and I should honor our earthly authorities today. And so you know, even as things inevitably heat up during this election season, let me encourage you just to be very thoughtful about the way you speak of political leaders. Even if you find it difficult to have any respect for their character, and even if you strongly disagree with their policies, they are still the authorities whom God has placed over us. And that means that we are called to honor them, even if our honor is mainly because of the office that they hold. Then moving forward in our passage, uh, Peter turns his attention to servants in verses 18 through 20. He writes, Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, 
when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, it's well documented that uh, slavery in the ancient Roman Empire was a lot different than the kind of slavery that used to uh, characterize the, the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in our own society in the past. Uh, nevertheless, it was still a terrible injustice in which people were considered to be property. However, that was the system in which the early Christians found themselves, and they really had no opportunity to change it. Remember, it's not like you know, they, they had a functioning democracy where they could you know, elect their leaders and, and take referendums on things and vote. Nero was in charge, and so it really was no use opposing that social order in any direct way. Therefore, Peter instructs those who are servants or slaves to be subject to their masters, and he tells them to do so with all respect. He then clarifies that it's their duty to do this even if their masters are unjust, which is a term that carries the literal meaning of being bent or crooked. Peter then speaks of how commendable it is when we endure unjust suffering. Of course, that's not in any way to say that we should voluntarily endure unjust suffering when there's a legal way of removing ourselves from it. Uh, Remember that Peter's writing to people in a situation for which there was no legal remedy or recourse. Uh, and I also think it's very clear from other passages of the Scripture that God would have us pursue whatever legal means of obtaining justice are available to us. The point of this passage, though, is that we should honor earthly authority, um, whatever authorities are over us, uh, for as long as they're over us. And so perhaps the closest modern-day parallel to this would be an employee submitting and showing honor to their employer. Now, it doesn't mean you can't leave your job and find another one, but it does mean that for as long as you work for that employer, it's your duty to submit to that and to do so, as Peter says, with all respect. This also means, by the way, that I won't put any absolute statement on this, but I would say Christians should think long and hard before participating in any kind of labor strike. I know that might sound a bit controversial to some, but I'm just not sure how it's possible to justify going on strike in light of the seemingly clear teaching of this passage. And so Peter's instructions uh, so far have been for all of us to submit to our governing authorities and for employees, we could say, to submit to their employers. And as we go through these verses once again, we see that there are two primary reasons Peter cites for giving these instructions. The first is for the sake of our witness. Why should we do this? Well, for the sake of our witness. As we saw last week in verse 12 of the previous passage, Peter told his readers to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
on the day of visitation. This means to conduct ourselves in such a way that even those non-Christians who accuse us of doing evil will at the same time see our honorable conduct and that some of them eventually will glorify God by becoming Christians. Peter then alludes to this same idea again in our main passage in verse 15. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, like submitting to authorities, you should put to silence the ignorance, that would be like the ignorant accusations of foolish people. In other words, by submitting to our earthly authorities, we can demonstrate to the watching world a certain kind of virtue and godliness, and in that way create a platform for a powerful gospel witness. And that was especially important for Peter's original readers because there was widespread suspicion in the first century that Christians were secretly subversive to the state. And yet this is still an important and relevant principle for us today. So for all of us freedom-loving Americans who are very passionate about our rights and freedoms. And, you know, I, I would put myself in that category. Let's just remember that in the grand scheme of things, the most important thing for us to be concerned about isn't our rights. It's not our freedoms, but rather it's our witness. People's eternal souls are more important than our rights. So let's just make sure that our focus, the thing we are most concerned about, is the right thing. In addition, uh, not only should we honor earthly authorities for the sake of our witness, we should also honor them because we are, well, ultimately, servants of God. In verse 16, Peter writes, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter's point in referring to us as servants of God is that our submission to earthly authorities is ultimately a submission to God's authority. This teaching is even more explicit in Romans 13, 1 and 2, where Paul writes... Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, here's the reason, right? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. It's kind of like, you know, when parents go out somewhere, like maybe on a date or to run a few errands and... They leave their children at home for a few hours if they have a child that's old enough to watch the rest of them. And usually when they do that, they will leave that oldest child in charge and they'll tell the other children that for that brief window of time that they need to listen to their older brother or sister. Now, in that situation, the oldest child doesn't have limitless authority or inherent or ultimate authority, but merely has delegated authority for that brief period of time. Similarly, all earthly authority 
whether it be the authority possessed by governments or employers or teachers or churches or parents or husbands or any other authority, is all delegated authority, right? It all has its origin and has been put in place by God himself. And so any rebellion against that authority is ultimately rebellion against God. And friends, let me just remind you that the God of the Bible is a good God and a loving God and a God who's established things the way he has in order to promote the maximum amount of human flourishing. And that includes the earthly authorities he's established. Contrary to what people today often believe, the authority structures found throughout society are actually wonderful gifts from our loving God. Of course, just like everything else in this world, authority is often twisted and distorted and abused. But authority itself, is a gift from God that's designed to promote human flourishing. I love the way David says it in 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. He states, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, right? So this isn't just David's own opinion. This is from God, right? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Doesn't that sound wonderful? That's the way God designed authority to operate and the effect he designed it to have. Of course, as I said, it's often not the way that authority actually ends up working in this fallen world, but that's nevertheless God's design. authority. And one of the key ways we can glorify God as Christians is to embrace that view of authority. That, That is authority as a good gift from a loving God and seek to promote the proper exercise of authority to whatever extent we can. Perhaps the most obvious way that we can do that is for those of us who are in various kinds of positions of authority to seek to exercise that authority in a godly manner. And on this topic, I really appreciate uh, Jonathan Lehman's book entitled Authority. Uh, The subtitle, you probably can't read it, but it says, uh, How Godly Rule Protects the Vulnerable, Strengthens Communities, and Promotes Human Flourishing. And toward the end of the book, Lehman offers four principles for how God designed authority to work. And we obviously don't have time to dig deep into each of these, but I would at least like to go through them very briefly with the hope that these will be helpful, especially for those of us who are in uh, positions of authority, and even for those who are not, to recognize when authority is being abused. First, godly authority isn't unaccountable, but submits to a higher authority. You know, when Jesus came, he came without question, as one who had authority. And yet, in John 8, 28, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, 
but speak just as the Father has taught me. So if even Jesus submitted to a higher authority, certainly God would have you and I submit to a higher authority as well, specifically to his authority. So regardless of how high you rank, Regardless of how much power you have, don't ever allow yourself to forget that your authority isn't ultimate and that you yourself are accountable to God and, yes, will one day be held accountable by God for the way you use the authority he's delegated to you. The day is coming when you will have to stand before God and answer to him for how you have used or abused the authority he's given you. Second, uh, godly authority doesn't steal life, but creates it. Just as God uses his authority to promote human flourishing, he calls us to use our authority to promote human flourishing as well. So for an example, maybe a particularly obvious one, is that parents should be seeking to help their children grow up to be godly and responsible adults. Also, managers should be seeking to help their subordinates grow and develop in their career fields. Police officers should be seeking to promote the vulner- or protect the vulnerable and to promote justice. Every earthly authority should seek to use their authority not to benefit themselves, but rather as a way of helping those under their authority to flourish. Or in Lehman's words, not stealing life, but creating it. And of course, let's not forget what we read a few moments ago, how David described a godly leader in 2 Samuel 23, verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. For those in authority, is that the effect that you seek to have on those who are under you? Like the rain that helps them grow, helps them flourish in various ways. Third, godly authority isn't unteachable, but seeks wisdom. Proverbs 12, 15 says it pretty directly. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And if you've ever read Proverbs, then you know there are numerous other statements in Proverbs saying basically the same thing. A key difference between a foolish leader and a wise one is that the wise leader continually pursues greater wisdom. He or she has a teachable spirit is open to correction, and often seeks out advice and feedback. And finally, number four, godly authority isn't self-protective, but bears the costs. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that he came not to be served, but to serve. And of course, the ultimate expression of that, it says to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the same basic mentality that everyone in authority is called to have. 
the, the mentality of serving others rather than of simply being served by them. Fortunately, uh, many leaders today have that exactly backwards. They use or rather abuse their authority in the pursuit of their own gain. And then they abuse it some more to try to cover up what they've done and protect themselves from the consequences of their behavior. And yet a godly leader, Lehman says, is not concerned about self-protection, but rather about sacrificially bearing the costs associated with their position. And as anyone who's been in a position of authority knows, that there are very real costs associated with being in that position. Many times, uh, those costs involve significant stress, a demanding schedule, being required to make difficult decisions, having people upset with you on a regular basis, being a target at times for slanderous attacks, and just the general weight of responsibility that's on your shoulders. And yet a godly leader will sacrificially bear these costs out of love, out of, as a way of serving and helping those under their authority. So again, it's not about serving, or it's about serving others rather than about being served by them. So let me encourage those who are in various kinds of positions of authority in here to seek to exercise that authority in a godly way. And let me encourage all of us to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. We all have authorities over us, so we're called to submit to them. And, of course, there are limits to that submission. Uh, this is taught very clearly in places like Acts 4.19 and Acts 5.29, uh, where we see that we're not required to submit to earthly authorities if they're trying to lead us into sin. Right? We are not required, uh, nor permitted, uh, actually, to submit to them if they are trying to tell us to do something that God forbids or trying to prohibit us from doing something that God requires. As Peter and John state very unequivocally in Acts 5.29, they say, we must obey God rather than men. That means, for example, not obeying your employer if they tell you to do something dishonest in order to increase company profits. However, in all other cases, when the authority is not trying to lead us into sin, God does expect us to be subject to the authorities he's placed over us. And in some cases, of course, this might be a very difficult thing for us to do and even require a measure of uh, suffering in this life. Uh, Peter demonstrates a clear awareness of that in our main passage, when he tells slaves to obey their masters, even if that requires enduring unjust suffering. And you might wonder, you know, how in the world could Peter say such a thing and require that? Well, he explains in verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him 
who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that is on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were all straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So our ultimate example of submitting to authority, even when that involves enduring unjust suffering, is none other than Jesus. Jesus suffered in the most horrendous ways when he was publicly reviled, mercilessly beaten, and eventually crucified. Yet he didn't resist or seek to extricate himself from that situation. But instead, Peter says, entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is, Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father and therefore submitted himself to the Father's will. And we should be glad he did. Because as Peter says in verse 24, it was on the cross that Jesus bore our sins. Like all of our sins were placed on his shoulders as if he had been the one to commit them. Essentially, Jesus functioned as our substitute and voluntarily suffered the penalty for our sins. Instead of us having to endure the penalty for our sins forever in hell, Jesus suffered that penalty on the cross. And the result of his sacrifice, and of course of his subsequent resurrection as well, the two go together, is, in Peter's words, that by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus' death and resurrection is what enables us to experience healing and forgiveness and eternal life as we put our trust in him. And as we think about the subject we've been discussing uh, this morning, our responsibility to submit to earthly authorities God's placed over us, that's something we can do even when it's difficult, when it's difficult because we know that Jesus has already traveled that path ahead of us. Among other things, his example reminds us that any unjust suffering we endure in the course of our submission to authority, it all has a purpose, just as the cross had a purpose. And of course, we know that no matter what we face, Jesus is always right there beside us bearing our burdens, giving us strength. He is, as Peter says in verse 25, the shepherd of our souls.